And I think that unfortunately, the fallout from that study has persisted and women aren't getting the care they needed. They were told just have to suffer. There's nothing uh, that can be done. And physicians who are the ones that they're going to, to look to for this education, didn't get the training and don't know the literature and are frequently will just tell women, this is a natural part of aging. The symptoms will go away. Don't do anything. Hormones uh, can increase your risk of breast cancer. Welcome to FemPower Health. Georgie here. Today we're tackling a topic that's essential yet often misunderstood, menopause hormone therapy. Despite many women struggling with menopause symptoms, surprisingly only about 10% opt for hormone therapy. This hesitancy largely stems from the 2002 Women's Health Initiative study, which has cast a long shadow over hormone therapy due to its association with breast cancer risk. But today, we're here to revisit and demystify this topic. We are joined by Dr. Mindy Goldman, a renowned expert in cancer survivors and those at risk. Today, we'll explore a critical review of the Women's Health Initiative study aptly titled, Tis But a Scratch, a critical review of the Women's Health Initiative evidence associating menopausal hormone therapy with the risk of breast cancer. And it was released on December 1st, 2023. This review challenges previous perceptions and opens up new discussions about the safety and efficacy of hormone therapy. Our conversation will not only focus on the study, but also delve into the various formulations of hormone therapy. It's critical for you as a listener to be informed about these options. Understanding the nuances of hormone therapy empowers you to have proactive and informed discussions with your doctor. After all, effective healthcare is a two-way street. It requires clear communication about your symptoms, needs, and concerns. So get ready to be equipped with the tools and knowledge to take charge of your health journey. And remember, for more resources specifically tailored to perimenopause and menopause, check out the FemPower Health website. And now let's hear from Dr. Goldman. Dr. Mindy Goldman, thank you so much for joining me on the FemPower Health podcast and apologies for my raspy voice. I tend to always catch a cold when I'm like most excited about an interview. So we are here to talk about menopausal hormone therapy or menopause hormone therapy because there's so much being discussed about menopause, which is fabulous. But I think there's still confusion, and you are quite the expert um, here to be talking with us today. So why don't you give us your background, and then we can dive into to all the nuances. Sure. Uh, first of all, I'm very excited to be here, so thank you for having me. Um, my background is I am trained as an OBGYN, and for almost my entire career up until recently, uh, I have been a on the faculty at the University of California, San Francisco, uh, as a general OBGYN, and based on a personal experience of helping my dearest friend uh, navigate breast cancer and unfortunately dying of breast cancer, I got interested in doing more for breast cancer survivors. And this was in the early 2000s. And I approached our breast care center saying, hey, I want to learn more about women's health and breast cancer and how that intersects and what I could do. And at that time, they were having a tough time getting people into the cancer center um, because luckily most people were living 
and they were having a tough time getting new patients in because they had so many follow-up patients to see. So they were sort of looking for someone to do follow-up care. And all of a sudden I come along saying, hey, I want to do more for cancer survivors. So with a lot of negotiations, I ended up joining our cancer center. And what started happening was people would approach me and say, hey, my patient was thrown into menopause from chemotherapy. How do I treat them? Or this person's having bleeding on tamoxifen. What do we do? This person wants to get pregnant. Is it really safe? And I start looking in the literature and went, oh my gosh, there is almost nothing out there about this field. So fast forward now 20 years, I uh, feel very lucky uh, that I have been able to help forward a field that didn't really exist, sort of bridging breast oncology and gynecology. And I've been able to work with the American College of OBGYN and helping writing, uh, help write guidelines of how to follow uh, the gynecologic implications for women with breast cancer. Um, I work with the National Comprehensive Cancer Network and chair their survivorship panels on uh, hormone health, menopause, and sexual functioning. And so have been able to really help uh, this field evolve and develop, still has many, uh, uh, many ways to go and much more to do. So I've really developed this whole specialty in caring for survivors and at-risk women. And in doing that, I sort of found that the visits that you do with patients are long and complicated, and I say the same things over and over again. And I was really interested in being able to have a bigger impact. And uh, Midi Health approached me, and they were developing a telehealth uh, company focused in perimenopause and menopause, and they said, we think survivorship is an unmet need. And I said, wow, finally, someone is listening to what I've been saying. And I uh, was able to partially jump ship from UCSF. I'm still there part-time where I started a fellowship in, okay. uh, that's combined with our breast surgeons and survivorship. But I really uh, joined MIDI as a full-time employee where I supervise our clinical care. So I'm our chief clinical officer and I'm very excited because hopefully in the next year, we're going to be developing a survivorship platform, being able to help people who've had cancer or high risk for cancer uh, focus in on uh, effective treatments for menopausal symptoms. I saw a stat today on social media as I was prepping, and I also ran across a study that just got published. So I want to talk about that. I think it's 90% of women will experience symptoms and um, only 10% will be taking hormone replacement therapy. And so I think this is an important topic because, you know, the women's health study has really created a lot of misinformation. But before we dive into this, like, is hormone therapy um, safe or not? And do folks who are at risk of breast cancer, et cetera, need to worry about it? I guess what I'd love to do is so that people understand drawing this picture between your expertise with these cancer patients and menopause so they can see how everything weaves together to how we can get to hormone therapy. Because the way I view this is, you know, a woman's going to enter this and say, oh my goodness, I'm so scared of breast cancer. I'm not going to do hormone therapy. And you are the person who is kind of at that point of someone who has survived it and is now trying to manage it, plus working at a company where you're managing these symptoms. So I guess, can you just maybe draw that picture 
of like, why are we talking to someone who has an expert in this space about hormone therapy, just so that the audience can understand. Uh, let's talk a little bit about in cancer survivors, why you even see all of this. So one big time that you see a lot of the symptoms that are very similar to what we see in natural perimenopause and menopause is when cancer survivors get chemotherapy, chemotherapy targets uh, rapidly dividing cells and it targets the cancer cells, but it's not specific only for the cancer cells. So it can affect the ovary where those cells are rapidly dividing. And we know that chemotherapy will shut down ovarian function. Whether it's permanent or not depends on how much chemotherapy you get and the age of the patient. So with chemo, people will experience the same symptoms that they see in perimenopause and menopause. And the issue is treatment options are uh, hormone therapy, which we know, no one will ever argue that it's the most effective treatment for symptoms, but for many breast cancer survivor, uh, survivors, that's not an option. There are some cancer survivors that can take hormones, but that's one reason why you say chemotherapy and uh, the effects of chemo on the ovaries. The other is that some of the hormonal treatments that are used to treat breast cancer can cause menopausal side effects. So two thirds of breast cancers are sensitive to hormones. And that doesn't mean that hormones cause someone to get cancer, but it means that hormonal therapies will be used as part of the treatment to modify the tumor environment. And typically those hormonal therapies are drugs like tamoxifen, which is used more is used in premenopausal women. And then this other class of drugs called the aromatase inhibitors, which are used in postmenopausal women. And those drugs can cause menopausal side effects like hot flashes. And so it's both a function of treatments like chemotherapy, as well as hormonal therapies that cause this intersection of cancer and what you see with natural perimenopause and menopause, because the symptoms can be exactly the same. On top of in cancer patients, they may be experiencing other things, cognitive effects uh, from chemotherapy that they call the chemo brain. Now we see that in menopause, but it can be even more pronounced in uh, uh, cancer patients, certainly pain, fatigue, there's a whole bunch of symptoms that are unique, I think, more unique to cancer survivors, but the hormonal stuff overlaps completely and is very similar to what you see in natural perimenopausal and menopausal women. I do still want to ask generally about that women's health study. So do you mind if we just start there and then we'll take the journey of that cancer patient just because I want to keep having every expert in menopause I bring on to talk about this study. So first, today, December 1, which is when we're recording this, a study came out. It is a critical review of this women's health study. So do you want to talk about that? Because that's really the latest that we have and even your reaction to that. If you want, I can read the excerpt for that help. It said that more recently, the publications um, acknowledge that hormone therapy as the most effective treatment for managing menopausal vasomotor symptoms and report that CEE, which is the conjugated equine estrogen, um, alone reduces the risk of breast cancer by 23% while reducing breast cancer death by 40. 
That is confusing to me, by the way, reading that statement. And their sole remaining concern is a small increase in breast cancer incident with CEE and medroxypedrosterone acetate, but with no increased risk of breast cancer mortality. And so on and on and on, they talk about more data. So can you digest that for us, please? <laughs> Let me uh, start from the um, statement that I, I entirely agree with the premise of that article, which is I do think that the Women's Health Initiative, while well-designed and hoping to answer uh, very important questions, did a huge disservice to women. And I think that anyone who has trained in medicine, in medicine since that was published, so since 2002, when the press totally took off with those results, haven't really didn't get adequate training in menopause, really doesn't understand the risks and benefits of hormone therapy. And um, I think that has, so both the, it's affected the public, it affected the public's perception of hormones, as well as it affected medical training. An interesting survey that was done by the Menopause Society in August showed that only a third of all residency training programs in OBGYN, that's where you typically are gonna go if you have these symptoms, and only a third of training programs in OBGYN had uh, um, programs that were even focused, training programs focused in menopause. So I think that in all of this really, I think is a fallout from the Women's Health Initiative. So I sort of say that as a starting point. And then let me give you my take on sort of what the Women's Health Initiative was, how we got to it, and then I'll comment on um, uh, the really wonderful article that came out. If you look anecdotally at uh, women using hormones, and this is going way back uh, more towards like the 70s and 80s, there was a lot of anecdotal evidence that uh, women who had uh, risk factors for heart disease, and we know heart disease is the number one cause of death, women who took hormones who had those risk factors had a lower likelihood of having subsequent heart disease or, or things like heart attacks, fatal, uh, fatal heart attacks. And, but that was sort of observational and anecdotal data. And so then in the late 1990s, with the first well-designed trials that said, well, let's look at hormones in people who are really at high risk for heart disease. They had already had a cardiac event and see if you gave them hormones, did it prevent a secondary event? These were the HERS trials. And lo and behold, it didn't. And people thought, well, that's sort of interesting, but you really wanna look at healthy menopausal women who don't have heart disease to see if you give them hormones, does it prevent heart disease? And that was sort of the design of the Women's Health Initiative, even though that started accruing before these cardiac studies came out. So in that group, this was considered and has been considered sort of the gold standard, multi-centered trial, many thousands of women, more than 16,000 women in the hormone therapy arm. And there were two groups of people studied, women who had a uterus and women who uh, had had a hysterectomy. And we have known since the 1980s that if you have a uterus and you take hormones, the estrogen component is the component of hormones that tends to make you feel better, but you need some form of progesterone to protect against uterine cancer. No uterus, no progesterone uh, needed. And 
There was a lot of bad press in 2002, which this article nicely outlines, when the estrogen progesterone arm of the study was stopped early with the finding that it didn't prevent heart disease and it surpassed the threshold for breast cancer. That's what the press totally took off with. People uh, misunderstood and thought hormones must cause cancer. Everyone's calling their GYNs and their primary cares, get me off of hormones. And that fallout has persisted to this day. Now, interestingly, one of the things that they talk about in this article today is what didn't get highlighted is when that study stopped, the estrogen only arm of the study didn't find those findings and continued and it stopped one year earlier than planned, not because of a higher risk of breast cancer, but because it didn't prevent against heart disease and it surpassed the threshold for stroke. And they found a lower risk of breast cancer. That didn't get publicized. And the question was, what was going to happen? Was that just a fluke? And what would happen when you followed those women longer and reported on outcomes? And that was some of the data that they quoted in this study. So there was a really wonderful article uh, that was published in JAMA in 2020 that was 18-year follow-up from the Women's Health Initiative looking specifically at breast cancer outcomes. And what didn't get highlighted was the fact that for the women who had had a hysterectomy, who got estrogen only, there was a statistically lower likelihood of getting breast cancer and a statistically lower likelihood of dying of breast cancer. That's what was discussed in the article that came out today. And in that article, similar to what they found, they had found a higher risk of breast cancer in the group that got estrogen and progesterone, no difference in dying of, of breast cancer. Now, um, before talking a little bit about, about what the article that came out today talked about, I want to talk about some other things, which is that uh, the Women's Health Initiative has been looked at in a multitude of different ways. And one of the things about that study was it was designed to look at heart disease as an outcome. So they chose to look at an older age population. The average age was 63. But the average age of menopause is 51. And most people coming in talking to their providers about hormones are usually in their 40s and 50s and not in their 60s. And the results of the WHI for women in the younger age group were entirely different. Hormones did prevent against heart disease, were associated with a lower risk of dying, and that led to what's called the timing hypothesis. So the timing hypothesis says the risks and benefits of hormones differ depending on how old someone is and the years since menopause. And if you're within 10 years of menopause or under age 60 when you start, the benefits clearly outweigh the risks with lower risks of dying of the number one cause of death, heart disease. And that didn't get publicized much. That's one thing. We've also done studies since then looking at different types of hormones. And in the Women's Health Initiative, they looked at a very specific oral drug. It was called, the estrogen was conjugated equine estrogen. The trade name was Premarin. The estrogen with progesterone was conjugated equine estrogen and medroxyprogesterone acetate or um, Prempro. And it turns out if you look at other formulations of estrogen, like transdermals or non-oral forms, 
when those are metabolized, they avoid first pass metabolism through the liver and they're thought to affect clotting profiles less, which means lower risk of blood clots and strokes. And there have been some really good quality studies, this trial called the ESTER trial that showed transdermal forms of estrogen are not thought to increase the risk of strokes. And that also hasn't gotten a lot of uh, uh, publicity, but we know that types of hormones that we're using nowadays are much safer. And so many people will recommend a transdermal form of estrogen uh, for first line where you may not increase risk of blood clots or strokes uh, at all. Now, taking that, if you go to today, uh, the article, I think what it really highlighted um, to me was, depending on how you look at the statistics of a study, you can manipulate how that data is reported out. And I think that while well-intentioned, that report made it sound like that risk of breast cancer was much, much higher than they actually saw. And it's questionable whether from this article, in my understanding, I only got to briefly look at it this morning, it's questionable whether there really was a higher risk of breast cancer because uh, when they corrected it, there was a much lower risk than expected in the placebo group, which is gonna inadvertently make the, the relative risk seem higher. I can tell you my take on the data is, um, I think that there's more and more of an understanding based on at least the 20 year follow-up that was published that estrogen alone is safer than we thought. I think if there is a higher risk of breast cancer associated with hormones, my take is that it's more the progestin component that impacts that risk and not so much estrogen. In fact, I just reviewed an article from a well-respected oncologist. It's not yet uh, published, but really looking and thinking that progesterone has more impacts on the breast than we previously thought. I'm also of the view that different progesterones may affect the breast differently. And in that study, they used a very strong synthetic form of progesterone that binds to the receptor tightly. And there's some studies more out of Europe that suggest the natural bioidentical formulations of progesterone that we tend to use nowadays may not increase the risk of breast cancer at all. So my own view is that hormones are a lot safer than uh, we previously thought. I think that the article today really helps call into question the fact that the numbers that were quoted appeared much higher than they actually were. I think we use formulations that are a lot safer. I think we should individualize a lot uh, because transdermal may not be right for everyone. If you have eczema or skin reactions, maybe that's not right for you. And I think that unfortunately, the fallout from that study has persisted and women aren't getting the care they needed. They were told just have to suffer. There's nothing uh, that can be done. And physicians who are the ones that they're going to, to look to for this education, didn't get the training and don't know the literature and are frequently will just tell women, this is a natural part of aging. The symptoms will go away. Don't do anything. Hormones uh, can increase your risk of breast cancer. First point of clarification, the synthetic form of progesterone, was it progestin? So the synthetic form that they use, this was this medroxy 
progesterone acetate. So the micronized progesterone or the trade name uh, uh, Prometrium, which is also a uh, bioidentical form of progesterone. Yes. Those are very different types of progestogens. I use the, I wanted to make sure I'm using the term uh, correctly. And again, I, uh, it's hormones are not hormones are not hormones. And that brings up the whole bioidentical. I, I always love to comment on that if that's okay. The bioidentical versus compounded and all of that and brings in pellets and different formulations. So I'd love it if I can comment on that. So bioidentical means formulations that are similar to what's produced in the body. And there are many bioidentical formulations of hormones of uh, estrogen as well as progesterone that are commercially available that are covered by uh, insurers. Unfortunately, bioidentical and compounded get confused a lot. Compounded formulations frequently include non-standard formulations where they are made in specialized pharmacies and they are natural. So people assume that they must be safer and they're often touted to be made in a way that they are targeted more for the individual as opposed to giving a standard dose. And that may include, include um, cream formulations of multiple different types of estrogens. It might include creams or pellets or trochies. And the large guiding organizations in the US like uh, the Menopause Society and the National Endocrine Society have all put out position statements on these compounded formulations, which essentially, essentially say that until we have randomized control trial data, looking at those formulations, you cannot assume because they are so-called natural that they are safer than any of the standard formulations, including standard bioidentical formulations that are available. My concern with some of those formulations are, as I mentioned before, if you have a uterus and you take hormones, you need some form of progesterone to stabilize the lining of the uterus to protect against uterine cancer. And sometimes in compounded formulations, they'll use a topical cream of progesterone. And it turns out progesterone is not absorbed well through the skin. And so when people are doing those types of formulations, they may not be getting enough progesterone to protect their uterine lining. And in fact, I have not too many years ago diagnosed endometrial cancer in someone who was on one of these compounded formulations, came in with some spotting and wasn't getting enough progesterone for uterine protection. So, so I, I know people are approaching those thinking they're safer, they're natural, they're targeted just for me. We really don't have good data that says you should be checking people's hormone levels and creating a dose that's based on those hormone levels. You want to treat someone based on their symptoms. And hormone levels don't always correlate with right. what sympt symptoms someone has. So if someone is in front of you and they are complaining of hot flashes and night sweats and mood changes and sexual dysfunction, and you check their levels and they're not out of a range where you think they should be, that doesn't mean you say to that person, hey, 
good thing. Your levels are okay. You want to treat them based on the symptoms they have. So I, you know, when I am approaching a menopausal woman, I will recommend standard bioidentical formulations uh, that are covered by insurance. I think cost is a big, uh, a big issue for people. And those compounded formulations aren't covered by insurance. And I really try to impress upon people that compounded is not the same as bioidentical. What about um, testosterone? I just want to bring that up specifically because that's usually where I hear about the pellets. Uh, testosterone uh, is not FDA approved for women. Let me put that out there. And there were actually some, typically testosterone is used for improving sexual functioning in women. And in fact, there were some well-designed studies in the uh, early 2000s, looking at the use of a testosterone patch um, for treating sexual functioning in postmenopausal women who are already on hormones. So their menopausal symptoms were treated. They didn't have vaginal dryness. They were randomized to these patches and they actually found improvements in sexual functioning and they never got through the FDA because it came on the heels of the Women's Health Initiative and the FDA said, we want more safety data with regards to the breast. And to this day, testosterone has never been FDA approved for women. So that's one thing to realize that it is not an FDA approved formulation for women. There are people that think testosterone should be added to hormone therapy, that it improves fatigue, overall well-being, metabolic health, cognitive health, bone health, in addition to sexual functioning. When you look at the data, um, there was a large uh, expert consensus group that got together a few years ago and published a really um, uh, well thought out guide for the use of testosterone in women. And really the best data supports the use of testosterone in improving sexual functioning. So low libido in postmenopausal women. Uh, we have data for improving muscle mass and bone health in men not in women. So all those other things that people talk about, you're really extrapolating. We know it can be used to improve sexual functioning. Because it's not FDA approved in women, um, people uh, have to get it in other formulations. So they can go to a compounding pharmacy. This is one of the times that I will recommend working with a compounding pharmacy. You want to make sure your compounding pharmacy does third-party testing to ensure uh, that it's a quality product, uh, but you can get a compounded form of testosterone where the doses are low enough that you won't see male hormone, male hormone or androgenizing side effects in women. You can also use one-tenth of a male hormone dosing, um, or sometimes people are using some of these pellets uh, and um, Again, the problems, I, I have concerns with the pellets because you can't take it out once they're in there. Um, absorption is variable for women. And so in this uh, position statement about the use of testosterone, really the formulations that are recommended are either a compounded formulation or one-tenth of the male hormone dosing. Okay. Now, the other thing to realize is testosterone is a controlled substance. So, and there are some of the federal laws surrounding controlled substances are changing. And so they are uh, requiring face-to-face -face visits with women more often. 
So it makes it a little bit more difficult to give patients testosterone for their sexual functioning. So one thing I try to tell someone is, look, if you are premenopausal and you have low libido, there are FDA approved drugs that are out there for improving libido. Flabanserin uh, is one, the trade name is Addy. Berlimetide is another, the trade name is Vilesi. Those are FDA approved drugs for improving libido. They've been studied, at least uh, flibanserin has been studied in postmenopausal women. It's not FDA approved, but could be used. There's no reason it couldn't be used. It just has to be used off label. But I tell people, certainly if you're premenopausal, go for something that is FDA approved. Postmenopausal, if women do notice changes in sexual functioning, it is a very reasonable thing to think about adding testosterone to uh, their regimen. I'm so glad I asked because that nuance is so, so important. And can I just make a statement where I was I was almost, when you were saying how um, it hasn't been studied in women, but it has in men, I'm like, haven't most things been studied in men and they apply it to women anyways? I mean, hello, <laughs> ambient disaster. And I was listening to you. I was like, this is ridiculous. This is just... Yeah, no, I totally agree. A lot of what we tout uh, is oftentimes studies that have been done in men that are extrapolated to women. You know, I think a lot of the heart disease stuff, you know, finally, we're starting to see studies appropriately being done in women so that we can understand, you know, things. But that was a big problem in the past. You know, the more I think about it, I actually think the 92 FDA approval or FDA mandate for women to partake in clinical trials is probably what led me to be in the sciences, because I wrote that. um, I was a science major in college, and I wrote that, I think, right before college or my freshman year. And it kept me staying in the sciences because I was like, I'm smart. I can do the sciences. Women aren't doing it. This is back then. Yeah. It's sort of interesting if that was in 1992 and you would think in almost 2024 that we would be further ahead than we are. I know. It's it's crazy. Okay. So thank you for that hormone course. I, I really think it was an important foundation. Because I think that clarity and that 101 is so important as people make decisions. So now let's transition um, into these these cancer patients. Um, so walk us through that journey of, you know, they're struggling with these menopausal symptoms. Tell us how you're addressing that, especially now that we have all this data that you've shared. It's important to realize that um, there aren't actually national guidelines that talk about the use of hormones in people at high risk for cancer, which includes people with a family history, people who have had prior biopsies with atypical change, people with genetic mutations, and people with cancer. The standard of care has always been not to use hormones in those situations because the thought is that Hormones could increase the risk of getting breast cancer if you're already at higher risk. And if you've had cancer, that hormones could impact how that cancer behaves, whether it increases the risk of recurrence or impact survival. But there aren't national guidelines that really talk about that. And we don't have randomized control trials. It's really hard to do a randomized control trial saying, okay, you're at high risk for cancer. Let's put you on hormones and follow you prospectively and see what happens. So most of 
the information we have is on uh, retrospective uh, data. And before talking about the cancer survivors, let me just comment that I entirely agree with the article that came out today that talked about the use of hormones in people who are higher risk. We do not have any data that says people who are high risk for breast cancer can't use hormones, that hormones is gonna add on to the risk that they already have. If there is a risk, it's likely an independent risk. And I think the study today calls into questions whether it's even a risk at all. Um, but certainly if someone has a family history or even a genetic mutation, they can use hormones. That doesn't mean they don't need close breast follow-up, which is clinical breast exam for high-risk people, imaging every year, which is at least a 3D mammogram, sometimes includes an MRI, lifestyle measures like regular exercise, specific amounts, 150 minutes a week, divided times interval cardio may decrease the likelihood of getting cancer, uh, at least for breast and possibly even colon, minimizing alcohol. Those are all things that people who are high risk should do. If someone has had atypia, like uh, a breast biopsy that showed atypical ductal hyperplasia or even precancer like DCIS, it's more controversial about whether those people should use hormones. There's actually a large study going on in the US right now. There are multiple centers that are accruing patients that are looking at a drug called Duavi that has conjugated estrogen in it to treat menopausal symptoms. And instead of using progesterone to protect the uterus from uterine cancer, it's using a drug similar to tamoxifen. And tamoxifen, we know, is FDA approved for prevention and treating breast cancer. And so this drug is being looked at as a drug to treat symptoms and prevent breast cancer in high-risk women. And there's some preliminary data out of the University of Kansas Medical Center that suggests it does indeed prevent cancer. So that's one of the things at MIDI that we do talk to our high-risk patients if they're in states where this trial is going on, we try to get them to the appropriate coordinators for the study. And if not, we're, we have been willing to talk to people to say, hey, we don't know uh, if this truly does prevent cancer, but we are willing to offer if you want, if you understand that, that may be an option and it can be an effective treatment for your symptoms. Use of hormones, again, a little bit more complicated uh, in that situation. And then if you shift to cancer survivors, if you've had invasive disease, generally it is considered a contraindication to use hormones. However, that does not mean that someone has to suffer. There are a multitude of options that can be used. So there are low doses of a number of medications, including certain antidepressants, neuropathic pain medicines, anti-seizure medicines, uh, older studies with a blood pressure medicine, overactive bladder medicines, that all in low doses have been shown to improve hot flashes. Now, the only thing those drugs have in common is they cross the blood-brain barrier. And previously, we would say, we don't know why they work, but they impact this temperature regulation zone in the brain. And we have randomized control trial data that show they can be effective. We sometimes choose certain ones to target the side effects. So for example, if a woman's having a lot of hot flashes at night that are interrupting her sleep, 
I may offer a drug like gabapentin because that can cause sedation as a side effect. So that can help out for night flash, uh, nighttime hot flashes that are disrupting sleep. Just this year in May, we had a new drug that hit the market. It's called v uh, Feslinitant or Vioza. Um, I love that they, they even advertised uh, for it at the Super Bowl this year. Like who thinks that you're advertising? That shows that menopause awesome. is having a moment, right? When they advertise about uh, a hot yes. flash drug at the Super Bowl. But this drug is the first drug that specifically targets the thermoregulatory center within the hypothalamus. It targets what's called the candy neurons. And it's the first drug that is really helping us understand the mechanism by which hot flashes occur. Now, this drug um, was not studied in breast cancer survivors, uh, mainly because it was easier to get through the FDA if you exclude cancer survivors. But there's yep. nothing about the drug uh, that uh, implies it, it can't be used. It is non-hormonal and it's a great option. So it just gives another tool for uh, women who have cancer uh, to be offered. Um, the biggest problem is it's new. It's not yet on all insurance plans. Uh, so sometimes you're having to fight and do prior authorizations. Certainly that is a, a drug that we are recommending for our cancer survivors. Then there's a whole other class of, you know, when you think about breast cancer, you need to think breast cancer is not breast cancer is not breast cancer. So for people, one third of people have breast cancer that's not sensitive to hormones. Again, that doesn't mean hormones had no impact. It means they won't use hormonal therapy as part of the treatment. And that's probably a worse disease upfront because all you have is chemotherapy. And sometimes those are more aggressive diseases. But if those patients don't recur after three to certainly by five years, they're likely cured of that cancer doesn't mean they couldn't get a new cancer. Um, and that's different than hormone positive patients where you can sometimes see recurrences late, like 15, 20 years later. But so for hormone negative patients, if they've done well, they finish their treatment and they're having menopausal symptoms, frequently we will offer them hormone therapy. And we, although there's still some people that think it's controversial, there really isn't data that says it impacts recurrence or survival. So meaning those patients could get oral contraceptives or postmenopausal hormone therapy. So I think the big thing for breast cancer um, survivors is understanding what type of cancer you have, realizing cancer is not cancer is not cancer. Don't let anyone tell you, be lucky you're alive, just suffer with these symptoms. There are plenty of options. That's just from the hot flash standpoint. We have lots of options, including certain hormonal options for treating all the vaginal dryness and sexual dysfunction that you see. We know, and through the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, the NCCN, we have survivorship guidelines that talk about the use of vaginal hormones and which ones we recommend and which ones we don't for people even with hormone uh, positive disease. So that's sort of the biggest takeaway that I really try to impress upon cancer survivors and what I'm hoping to do as we develop out at MIDI, our national cancer platform is 
please don't let anyone tell you you have to suffer. There's so many things to do. And that's not even, we haven't even talked about, there's a whole bunch of lifestyle things that we talk about. There may be certain um, supplements, uh, even herbs. We know less about some of the herbs, but things that can be uh, offered. So I just want to make a couple of points of clarification with um, the great information you were just sharing. So one is the hormone-related breast cancer. Is that all because everyone right now is talking about the BRCA gene. And so I just want to make sure we're aligning terminology. So when someone's thinking BRCA, is that always the hormone related or could there be just because you need to know that you're cancer? So can you talk a little bit about that just to make sure people are very clear? 80 to 85% of breast cancers just happen and we don't know why. We know there may be risk factors, but we don't really know why someone got cancer. 15 to 20% of breast cancer is thought to be something that runs in the family. And of those, about 15 to 20% of those cancers are thought to be related to genetic mutations, the most common being BRCA. And so BRCA represents a small percent of breast cancers. Um, There are different BRCA genes. BRCA1 mutation is most often associated with what's called a triple negative cancer, which means it's not sensitive to estrogen, progesterone, and there's another marker that they test for that's called HER2-NU. BRCA2 is more often associated with hormone positive cancer, uh, meaning either sensitive to estrogen, progesterone, or both. So BRCA doesn't nest, you can have uh, breast cancer that is hormone positive that has nothing to do with uh, BRCA and only a small percent is BRCA. And then also realize now that we have the ability to do these multi-gene panel testing, uh, there are other genes that we have learned about in addition to BRCA that can be associated with a higher risk of breast and or other cancers. So if you are BRCA2, is it okay to take these hormone therapies? Yeah. Uh, even the, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, uh, I think that in their guideline, they will say people can use it with caution. Again, my take on the literature is that there is not good data that says hormones increase the risk further in someone whose risk is already really high by having uh, BRCA. If it does, it is a negligible risk. And that's one of the things that I think the article okay. talked about today that we don't have good data that says in people who are higher risk, that hormones really add significantly onto that. Um, And so just because someone has BRCA doesn't mean they can't use hormones, but that doesn't mean they still need to get their close breast follow-up. So they still need to get their exams. They still need to get their mammograms and MRIs. If they're choosing to take a drug to prevent breast cancer, like tamoxifen, Typically, we haven't given hormones in that situation, and more often we haven't done that because the concern is that tamoxifen is a drug that can increase the risk of blood clots, as can hormone estrogen in hormone therapy, and so would they be on a drug that's additive for clots? Now, in Europe, they do give HRT to alleviate the side effects of tamoxifen, and if you look at this new drug, well, it's not a new drug. It's back on the market. Duovi that I mentioned before, that is a conjugated estrogen. We know estrogens can increase the risk of clots, and it includes a drug like 
tamoxifen, which can have clot risk. So I think that that's being called into question even could we potentially consider giving hormones to women who are also on tamoxifen for uh, breast cancer prevention? Little yet, not not quite clear, but okay. big take home is just because you have BRCA, do not feel like, again, you have to suffer if you choose not to do hormones. I tried to say there are a lot of other options available, but I think hormone therapy is still a reasonable option. Okay. And then real quick on Vioza. So word on the street is expensive, lots of side effects. Why bother? You have said you recommend it. I would love to hear your thoughts on on that. Yeah. I think, uh, A, I will clarify that I haven't had enough patients uh, that I have seen followed long enough. Again, the drug just came out in May. Really get a good handle on how well it's tolerated of fighting with insurers to get it through. I think that it's just another option, right? The more options we have available, and certainly we need to see, maybe there's going to be, I did read studies looking at other doses. So maybe that's going to be studied more and we'll be able to find lower doses that have fewer side effects. But just having options is a really great thing. I, I've hit menopause and I'm like, I tell my friends, they're here. I got the hot flashes and it's, it's, it's very different. Cause I used to get just really hot and like major night sweats and perimenopause, but now I get like that actual flash, but I will say wine and sugar. I tell you cutting that yes, out makes such a huge difference. Yeah. And that's what, you know, when we're talking particularly to cancer survivors, there's a bunch of lifestyle things that they can do, you know, of uh, looking at dietary factors uh, fans can work, dressing in layered clothing, decreasing stress. We know that stress can impact hot flashes and night sweats. So um, I tell people, don't forget about lifestyle. It's really important. Right. Wow. This was incredible. Like, again, when I researched your background, I knew you'd be the perfect person to, to talk to about this. And it has been just an incredible learning lesson for me. And, and I really appreciate your dedication. And I know people have learned a lot from, from this discussion. Oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you. And that wraps up another empowering session here at the FemPower Health Podcast. Now, before you dash off, I've got a quick, exciting invitation for you. Please join our vibrant community by subscribing to our weekly newsletter, because it's really your frontline update on groundbreaking women's health research, the latest health-enhancing products, fun quizzes to boost your health IQ, and unique discoveries that you won't want to miss. All of this delivered straight to your inbox, cutting through the noise of social media algorithms. Love today's insights? Show your support by rating and reviewing our podcast. Your feedback is more than just a pat on our backs here at FemPower Health. It lights the way for others seeking guidance and community in their health journey, amplifying the voices that need to be heard. And for a deeper dive into today's topics, check out the show notes and explore our website at fempower-health.com. Our site is a treasure trove of knowledge, neatly categorized by topics of interest and life stages, ensuring you find exactly what you need to empower your health journey. And your voice matters to us deeply. Whether you have a question, a story to share, or feedback on our episodes, reach out directly at info at 
fmpower-health.com, drop us a message on social media, or hit reply on any newsletter. Your insights inspire our conversations. And a quick note, the knowledge we share is here to embolden you in discussions with your healthcare provider. It's not medical advice. Always consult with your doctor for health decisions. And remember, the diverse perspectives of our guests reflect their individual journeys, and it's not an endorsement by FemPower Health. Here's to empowering your health journey one episode at a time, and I'll see you on the next FemPower Health podcast episode.